Welcome to the Together PDX podcast. You're listening to our Gospel Gathering series, where we will be replaying valuable content from past events where local Portland leaders gathered to hear from authors, theologians, and scholars. We'd like to note that the views shared by our guests don't necessarily reflect those of the entire Together PDX team. We pray today's content enriches your day and spirit. Hey everyone, I'm Elise Gallus, and today I have an episode for you that features a New Testament scholar that seems to be very popular amongst the people of Portland, Scott McKnight. This is actually the last talk I'm pulling from the COVID-era archives, but hasn't it been fascinating to listen to those talks through the lens of today and hear all God has to say to us right now from these theologians a few years ago? Today's talk is just as interesting. Scott's going to dive into the topic of what does it mean for our churches to embody a culture of Christ-likeness? What is tov, the Hebrew word for goodness used all throughout the Old and New Testaments? And what does it mean for our churches today? I'm excited for you to hear what he has to say. So enjoy part one of Scott McKnight's 2020 talk, Restoring a Goodness Culture. We don't have a lot to say. We're grateful that Scott is with us today and Mark and I are just kind of here to ask a few questions at the end, but Scott, thank you for being willing to share with us. Um, you're one of Portland's favorite theologians, and we're always grateful when you come out. And so we're looking forward to hearing you today. And thanks, that's all Rick. I wanted to say. Rick, thanks, and good to see you again. And it's wonderful to be with the people of Portland. I wish I could fly out there and See your beautiful country again. Yeah. Well, we'll let you go. We'll get off here, and we're looking forward to hearing you. I was reading uh, not too long ago uh, David Brooks's book called The Second Mountain, and I don't know if that's his most recent book, but I like to read David Brooks. Uh, he's a person who observes American culture really well, and he... Um, he sees things in sociological perspective. Um, he's on a quest uh, that looks very close like he's uh, becoming a Christian. Uh, he's married an evangelical wife uh, who's a Wheaton grad. And so this book uh, took on a special tension and uh, a texture for me because he brought up uh, stuff about faith and his own journey, and what he was thinking about, and where he was. But I was arrested by one of his comments. On page 22, he makes this statement. Never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. Think about that. Never underestimate the power of the environment you work in to gradually transform who you are. Then he gives a, a rather common example. When you choose to work at a certain company, you are turning yourself into the sort of person who works in that company. Moreover, living in a pragmatic, utilitarian manner turns you into a utilitarian pragmatist. Well, I was, uh, I was reading this book in um, concurrence of working on a topic about church cultures because of what had happened in Chicagoland's churches with Willow Creek and Bill Hybels and the discovery of all that was going on there and um, my daughter and her husband had attended there for many, many years and we attended there for 10 years and I had gotten to know a number of people who were leaders, and suddenly it was like the curtain was pulled back, and we were hearing things that uh, were not very good. And we were being told things off the record uh, about stuff that had taken place, power plays, money, and uh, it just it really got me to think about our churches. Uh, and what's happening, and why are these things happening? Not long after this, um, another huge church in Chicagoland area called Harvest Bible Chapel, uh, led by James McDonald, 
uh, imploded with leadership problems, uh, power mongering, um, money uh, discussions. I mean, it was it was really a difficult time in 2018 to be a part of the evangelical scene in Chicagoland. And so you pastors in Portland, uh, I envy uh, the the good reputation that so much of Portland's churches have. And um, I got to thinking about culture and how church cultures are formed. And um, I had a big picture. The, the big picture for me is that churches should become Christ-like. They should exude a culture of Christ-likeness. And not just individuals being Christ-like, but the, the whole organization. So I, I was thinking and reading people like Diane Chandler and some things I read of hers and uh, reading about culture and church culture. And I came to the conclusion that uh, what we need is a greater focus in our churches on culture. What kind of culture does our church have? Every church is a culture. And that culture, once we become part of it, begins to make us like it. I, I was in a church one time in, um, in another state whose uh, initials are Indiana. And in this church, it seemed like everybody was hyper-organized. In fact, people were required, if they wanted to be members, to use something called a seven-star diary. Now, this is dating me a bit. Uh, this is pre-computer, pre-iPad, pre-iPhones, um, pre-computer digital organization skills. But everybody had to have one, and they were, uh, they, they were a such commitment to one another that they would make one another's diaries uh, available to anybody in the church who wanted to see it. And I came away thinking that that's a whole culture that has been built by a pastor who was really into that sort of thing. And it was, at one level, it seemed to be an invasion of privacy. At another level, it was a manifestation of vulnerability. But it was a culture. And I got to thinking how how cultures in churches are formed. And um, I think there are several elements, at least four elements, and there's there's many more, but I wanted to focus on these, uh, that there are narratives told about stories that shape the culture. There are actions that are embodied by the people of that church that shape the culture, form the culture. There are teachings that are taught that form the culture, and a, a lot of us who are teachers and preachers, pastors and authors, we think that people by reading our stuff or listening to us are going to start living exactly what we say, and um, it doesn't take long as a pastor and as a teacher to know that that doesn't happen as quickly as we'd like it to happen, and sometimes it doesn't happen at all, and people form anti-teachings. But then there are policies that we form. Our policies uh, can derive from denominations. They can derive from churches in our circuits, in our associations, or in our close friendships. Uh, but these policies actually don't form the culture so much as express a culture that is already existent, or they might express a culture that the leaders would like to see in existence. But once this culture, let's say these uh, leaders start doing, telling these narratives and they start living these behaviors and they start doing these teachings and then they start forming these policies, they get into the congregation, but then the congregation in many ways reiterates and adjusts and adapts and accommodates and corrects and modifies our policies, our teachings, our actions, and our narratives. So that over time, a culture forms in a church so that when people enter into that church, uh, they encounter a culture. So I would like to begin by seeing if we can get church leaders uh, to think about the culture at their church. And now I'm going to make a very big suggestion. And I've said already that I think our churches ought to exude 
manifest, embody, whatever word you want to use, not just articulate or teach, our churches ought to embody a culture of Christ-likeness. Uh, I came across a word uh, that came alive for me in the Hebrew Bible and in the New Testament as well, and that Hebrew word is tov, T-O-V, tov. And it means goodness or good. And it is used some 700 times in the Old Testament. And uh, I know that Protestants have a bit of an allergy about thinking that they are good, uh, that we are taught, I was taught when I was young, from Romans chapter 3, that there is none good, no, not one. And uh, we're going to look at that. But I'm going to ask people to bracket that for a second and to start thinking about the number of times that this word tov or goodness appears in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and realize that this is one really important way of expressing what the culture of a church ought to be. I got to thinking about this so much uh, that my daughter and I have now written a book. The book is called uh, A Church Called Tov, and it, it is coming out this fall with Tyndale Press. And um, we worked on this as um, a manifestation of the kinds of problems going on in Chicagoland's churches, um, in the Southern Baptist Church, um, with all the sordid stories of sexual abuse especially of girls, young girls, and of the Roman Catholic Church. I don't know if you read Frederick Martel's amazing book about the Catholic Church, but it's uh, it's way more than I wanted to hear. At any rate, I got to thinking that what our churches need is tov. We, we need a culture of tov. Christ-likeness is tov, because when you look hard at this word tov in the Bible, and his New Testament equivalents of kalos and agathos, rarely, but sometimes aristos, that this word often points us to Christ. Christ is tov, tov is Christ, and so we need to develop Christ-likeness, and if we develop Christ-likeness, we're going to be more tov. But I want to look a little bit in our first session at what the Bible says about tov, and in the first page of your Bible, we find this. It pops up this word good seven times. Light is tov. Land and sea are tov. Plants are tov. Day and night are tov. The sea animals are tov. And the land animals are tov. And then on the seventh day, God saw all that he had made. And it was very good, or tov ma'od, Genesis 1.31. So the Bible opens with a powerful rendition of one word. This is what God wants. He wants a creation that is tov, and when that creation is as it's supposed to be and designed to be, it will be described as tov. In Amos chapter 5, we read this in verses 14 to 15. Do what is tov and run from evil. The Hebrew word for evil is ra. So tov and ra are often opposed to one another in the Bible. Do what is tov and run from evil so that you may live. Then the Lord God of heaven's armies will be your helper. Just as you have claimed, hate evil and love what is tov. Turn the courts into the true halls of justice. Perhaps even yet the Lord God of heaven's armies will have mercy on the remnant of his people. Notice these words that are connected to tov already. That is words like love and justice. Tov is one of the most prominent words in the Old Testament. I do not find this word used in churches in a way that reflects 
their biblical significance. And I can, I don't know this is the fact, but I know that Tim Mackey out in your area could do an amazing uh, video on Tove, and he probably already has, and I, I, have, I just haven't seen it. But I, I want to look at this word Tove and uh, outline its major themes in the pages of the Bible as a way of helping us to develop Tove in our culture. Uh, we look we look for examples of Tove, and um, I did, uh, my daughter and I, uh, we did our best not to valorize, idealize, or glorify some ministry as a perfect example of Tove. And we did that because of our own experience at Willow Creek and of other churches. So in our book, um, and because the person is dead, we used, we used the story of Mr. Rogers. And I know some of you have seen uh, Tom Hanks. It's a nice story about Mr. Rogers. Uh, the, the plot, the basic plot of that movie is not actually what happened in his life, but it's, it represents the kind of person that Mr. Rogers was. And I was amazed in reading a biography of, of Mr. Rogers, Fred Rogers recently, of the number of people who used this very word of Mr. Rogers. Now, they didn't use the Hebrew word, tov, but they said over and over, he was a good man. The reporter who wanted to hang him up and who was specialized in finding the dirt on people that nobody else knew about, when he was done interviewing and interviewing and investigating, Fred Rogers said, He's the real thing. This guy is in public what he is in private. His wife said this. His children basically have said this. The people who work with him day in and day out said, um, I've never met a man like Mr. Rogers. He's told several of the people said he's the most Christ-like person they'd ever met in their life. And I, I would like to uh, talk to pastors and leaders in churches, and just say this. Our, our people deserve Tove. They deserve to see Tove embodied in our churches. They deserve that Tove becomes a prominent theme in our churches and that people will look around and say, I want to be with these people because this place is Tove. It's so full of Tov, that we, I, I want to be involved. Because, as David Brooks said, it is we can never underestimate the impact of a culture upon us if we live and work with people who are Tov, they will make us more Tov. That's a fact. Uh, either we become massive hypocrites, and I, I want to I want to urge. Pastors, yes, I use the story of Mr. Rogers. My daughter, Laura, and I do. But uh, I, I think that churches deserve pastors who are marked by Tove. I believe that we have fallen prey to the American Western ambition connected to success, that we measure success by size of our churches, we measure success by how much money comes in. We measure by how many people have been saved this year, baptized, how many people in our classes, how many people buy our books. Um, I, I heard a person the other day uh, in a conversation, it was actually an apologetic conference, say um, in an insulting way, to a, an evangelical Christian that he was more significant because his book had sold 300,000 copies. And then he, he asked the other person how many copies of his books had sold. And then it went quiet really quick. But, but this is, this is um, the American dream of success. But the American dream of success is not the Bible's idea of success. Success in the Bible is measured by Tov. How good are you? 
how good are your leaders? How good are the people teaching in your, how good are your marriages? How good are your relationships with one another in the church? How much tov is pulsing and pulsating through your church? That, that's what I think we need to focus on in our churches. So I want to look at some of the themes connected to tov in the pages of the Bible. And this is a bit of a biblical study. Uh, and in our book, uh, we use uh, some of these themes. We develop some others. Um, and we think that uh, connected to every kind of, co- of tov, there is a resistance. And, I, and I'll get to those in a few minutes. Uh, so people who are committed to tov resist ra. They resist evil. People committed to justice resist injustice. Um, and so uh, we will look at that as well. But I want to begin on this thing. If we're going to talk about Tob in the pages of the Bible, we have to start with this fact, that God alone is Tob. God is Tob. He doesn't just have Tob. God is utterly and ontologically uh, and to the very core of God's being is tov, is goodness. And I want to read a few verses that uh, struck me about tov from the book of Psalms. In Psalm 119, verse 68, we read, You are tov, and you do only tov. It's a powerful verse. Psalm 119, 68. So, uh, Joshua, though, in 21.45 says, God's own doing of Tov refers to God's covenant with Israel and thus describes, according to Joshua 21, God's generous acts of redemption and deliverance and liberation for the people of Israel. So salvation is a part of what Tov means for what God does. Psalm 23.6 says, that God is not only good, and not only does good, but God pursues us with his tov. Surely your tov and unfailing love, has said, will pursue me all the days of my life. I don't know about you, but I think this is a pretty interesting expression, that God is chasing us, and we are running, evidently. God is pursuing us with his tov. It's like he sends the envoys or angels of Tov after us, and they're out to catch us and trap us in their Tovness. Psalm 34.8 says this, Taste and see that the Lord is Tov. All who will listen to this relentless chasing uh, with Tov God will lead to an experience when they turn and face the tov that is after them, that this God is tov. Psalm 73, those who have tasted that God is tov say, as for me, how tov it is to be near God. Psalm 30, 73, 28. And the last verse from the book of Psalms that I want to bring to our attention in this theme of tov is that uh, God's tov is not mean-spirited, it's not harsh, it's not guilt-forming, it's not tough. It is full of grace. O Lord, Psalm 86.5 reads, You are so tov, so ready to forgive, so full of unfailing love for all who ask for your ask for your help. So God is a God who is Tov. He does what is Tov. His Tov is after us. This Tov is full of grace. It is full of forgiveness. It is readily available because of God's unfailing commitment to us is unfailing love and loving kindness and faithfulness. It's after us. And if we but turn to it, 
we will experience and know and taste that the Lord, who is full of tov, who is chasing us, is good. So let us taste that the Lord is good. I know, even as I read these verses, I sense this all over for myself again. And I've been pondering these verses for several years, um, studying the concordance on the word tov. So let's, let's begin with this when we start talking about tov. This is not simply morality and ethics, and it's certainly not moralism. It's not some kind of legalistic rules setting. And now we have these expectations that we can't live up to. We have to start with the fact that God is tov, and he's going to bring us through his embrace into his into union with himself, and that union is transformative. So we need to begin with the fact that God is good. The second thing, and this brings us back to the verses that I quoted from Genesis chapter 1, is that God's design for all creation is tov. I think if you look at this word tov, it's sort of like, what teachers write on the top of their paper when they write excellent or great or give you a grade A or a 100 or a 98. Uh, 95, I've learned with students today, is almost an insult. Everybody thinks they are above average. In fact, John Ortberg used to say this frequently when he was still at Willow Creek, that 90% of high school grads think they're above average. I'd like you to think about that a bit. And then think about grading student papers. God looks at all creation and he goes, that's Tov. I I listen to uh, Rob Patterson's songs. I listen to John Michael Talbot, Healer of My Soul. Uh, We listen to Stuart Townend. Um, We listen to, uh, I don't know, some... People who sing, uh, bless the Lord, oh my soul. There's a young girl, little girl who sings this. And when you listen to the music, you say, that's Tov. You look at a sunset that has the right amount of light and reflection and cloud space, taking up space to give amber colors and pink colors and hues. And you say, that's Tov. You look at the mountains in the Portland area and you say that's Tov. And you read a really good book and you hear a really good sermon and you encounter a really good person and you say that's Tov. This is divine design that things have this sense of Tov. Everything that God has made in this world is tov. This morning on our bird feeder, we were looking at hummingbirds. They are an amazing little creation. And on our walk, I saw three warblers because this is the time when warblers are passing through Chicago. And I like birds. A black-throated green warbler, a black Bernian warbler, and an American redstart. And of the three, that black Bernian warbler with its brilliant orange throat, you look at it and you're going, oh, that is tove. That's a beautiful little bird. Now, I know from experience that there are a lot of people who would walk by those same trees and not see those, so they're missing the tove that they could see. Um, and they're disobeying Jesus who told us to look at the birds of the sky that's an imperative, just in case. In Blepsida, Ta, Patena, Tuarunu, look at the birds in the sky. Watch them. Observe them. And uh, be a bird watcher. This is Tov, um, a well-constructed novel. I'm reading Ernest Hemingway's The Old Man in the Sea. I recently read a bunch of novels by Willa Cather, and I encounter these stories and I think that was Tove. That, that was a really good story that spoke life to me. And I understand people and myself and reality better because of it. So
So God's design for all creation is tov. God turned formless and empty disorder into goodness. Tov is God's own artistic evaluation of what God has done. He looks back and he said, that's pretty good. That's what, what I'm trying to accomplish. This is the order that I want for my world. So the first place we begin is with the fact that, and I, I don't want to run over my time here, um, the fact that God is Tov, and the second that God's design is Tov. The third is this, and this is this is fundamental to the whole uh, scheme of goodness, and that is we, you and I, are designed by God, God for the virtue of Tov. So I want to go through some of the verses in the Bible about this, and then we will close our first session. Solomon's famous petition to God in 1 Kings chapter 8 included one of the Bible's pristine summaries of how uh, God wants us to live before him, before our Tov God. So Solomon prays, that God will teach the people our good way, told direct, in which they should walk. First Kings 8.36. We, he wants, uh, he wants God, he prays that God will teach these people how to walk in Tov throughout their life. Do we pray that people will be tov. You know, when we encounter someone who is tov, we know it. When we encounter something that is tov, we know it. Do we strive for tov? That's why I think it's important for us to think about culture and our culture as a tov culture. But tov is not something that we pull ourselves up with by the bootstraps, get up in the morning and say, now go do some tov. I suppose is okay, but this is accomplished in us, as I said earlier, through the divine embrace, through the power of the Spirit. This is how the Apostle Paul states states it. The fruit of the Spirit is goodness. One of the fruits of the Spirit is goodness. And the the Greek word that is used in Galatians 5.22, for the fruit of the Spirit is goodness, often translates the Hebrew tov in the Old Testament. So this happens, this virtue developing in us of tov happens through the power of the Spirit. And I often tell my students, and they laugh at this, that tov happens. Tov is not something that is abstract. It is something that we do, that this is encountered by embodied behaviors. Paul tells the Romans in a moment of clear encouragement, and the whole letter is not always filled like that. You yourselves, he says, are filled with tov, or goodness. Romans chapter 15, verse 14. You yourselves are full of tov. He probably thought at other times that they were full of something else. In Ephesians chapter 5, he says, echoing the fruit of the Spirit to the Ephesians, he says, the fruit of light consists of all tov, or all goodness. So this is a virtue for Christians to be characterized by tov. Now, one of my favorite examples of this is going to take a little bit longer. It's in Matthew chapter 20, uh, because it expresses what one of the major manifestations of tov is all about. One of the most interesting parables of Jesus is called the parables of the laborers in the vineyard. And it's in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 15. And it's verse 15 that um, makes things kind of interesting. The owner, who represents God in the story, says, Should you be jealous because I am kind to others? This is the New Living Translation. Hold on to that word kind. 
The NIV, just like the NRSV, translates, or are you envious because I am generous? Generous, not kind, generous. Now, notice also that one of them said jealous and one said envious because these translators often don't know the distinction between jealousy and envy. But I'll let you look that up in a dictionary and study it because we are not jealous of other people. We're jealous of our own status and we envy what other people have. But the Greek word behind both kind and generous, and the ESV has generosity, the Greek word behind it is the word good. In our terms, to be tov is to be generous. If you look at 1 Peter, 1 Peter uses this expression, doing good. Frequently. Not only does he use this expression, doing good, frequently, translators are a little nervous about this, and so sometimes they don't even use the word good. They're afraid that Christians might all of a sudden start striving to be good. And we've learned from Paul that there is none good, no, not one. But Peter wants these marginalized Christians who are suffering to practice good works and to be good. And Bruce Winter, a great scholar of the ancient world, described this expression of doing good in 1 Peter. For instance, that uh, Peter says that we are to be doing good. Uh, and he says in, uh, which verse do I want to quote here? 1 Peter chapter 1 of chapter 1 talks about this in chapter 2, verse 11. In verse 12, he says, Conduct yourselves among honorably among the Gentiles, so that though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds. Aha! Your good deeds. And glorify God. What did Peter mean when he talked about good deeds? Well, Bruce Winter investigated this expression, agathopoio, is the Greek word, Agathopoioi is the uh, noun, and it, it talked about providing food for the poor during a famine. It even is used at times for pirates who swipe grain from boats and bring it into harbor in a city that is starving. It refers to marble being built or statues being built. It refers basically to public benevolence by these marginalized Christians. And Peter wants the Christians to be marked by doing good in such a way that the community will be struck by the generosity of these Christians that are sprouting up all over the Roman Empire. So I would like to uh, close this first session with this idea that the virtue of Tov is manifested most completely in Christian generosity in all directions. God is tov, God's design for us is tov, and our primary virtue should be tov. Okay, now, I can't see anything other than uh, still images, and I think Rick and Mark are coming back on to interrogate me to give me a hard time, and I see that we're a Detroit Tiger. Is that a Detroit Tiger hat in the back? Oh, uh, no, it's a Harley Davidson. Harley Davidson. Oh, the black one underneath it. What is that? Oh, that's Boston, baby. Oh. <laughs> that's worse. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not. They're not good. They haven't been towed lately. Yeah. Scott, we just want to, you know, you know, say that we, you know, appreciate, you know, your, your uh, talk. It was told. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, it was just kind of really just kind of hit a, a number of points. And so I wanted to ask you the question, you know, when you think about culture and you think about environment in the church, you know, a lot of times you talk about discipleship and we think about, um, the individual or people discipling others. You know, when you think of environment or culture in terms of how that has an impact on shaping Christ likeness in the lives of parishioners and those who are part of our community, 
um, takes time to develop the culture. It takes time to develop the environment. So when we talk about trying to uh, create a culture that uh, has told woven within, the, woven within the fabric of it, I mean, where do we start? You know, because all the all the seminars we go to, sometimes many of the books that we read, uh, kind of what's been in a lot of ways pumped into us in terms of how we do church. And like you said, what's church success is, I mean, where do we start? How do we undo some of that to try to uh, create a new value and a new culture within the church? Well, um, Mark, that's a good question. I think it's the, uh, the heartbeat of our book and of what this project is about. So I, I really appreciate the question. I think this is the one we need to focus on. Okay, I, I think undoing a culture um, takes a lot of work, and it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of patience. It will almost always require some change of personnel. But I would say that the uh, and I and I teach pastors or people who are church leaders. I think the most important thing is that we as leaders nurture in our own lives tov so that we become a model of Tov. And then I think we want to surround ourselves with people who are Tov. Yeah. Now look, I know enough about the Portland pastors and that they love Jerry. What's Jerry's last name? Jerry, the, pet, the teacher. <laughs> Gary Brashear. Gary Brashear. Uh, here, yeah. you know, I've been with Gary a few times. I, I don't know him real well, but I'd say uh, someone who has that kind of influence for that long has that kind of influence for that long because there's a certain tove about the man. I think we need to find models of tove in our community and rally around them is what we're looking for. Becoming tove ourselves, finding role models of tove that we can be around and then refocusing so many of our good things toward nurturing Tove in culture at the church. What does it mean to create salaries for people in a church that reflect Tove? What does it mean to disciple when our goal is Tove? Sometimes I, I hear a discipleship discussion is they want to create disciples. Well, what the heck is a disciple? You know, what is one? Uh, it's not just a disciple. We're discipling. What, what are you discipling people into becoming? And so I would say three things. We need to become Tove. We need to find role models of Tove and lift them up is what it's all about. And then I think uh, we need to refocus the energies of our church around Tove. Now, when I say Tove, I don't think that this is some clever little cute word, Hebrew word that we can now use and be smart and clever. I think that this expresses the heartbeat of God's design for all creation, and it is, in essence, Christ-likeness and Christoformity is the way I talk about it in my book, Pastor Paul. It is to be like Christ is to be told. So, and we'll get to that. I, one of the things that I'm thinking about just in terms of uh, the, the broader culture and how, how much it affects us. So I think of a young pastor starting his or her position, meets with the board. The first book they're handed is Good to Great. Tove to great. Um, the assumption is Tove. Tove isn't. Tove is blah. Tove is boring, right? That's kind of the assumption. And I and I think the challenge becomes um, that the market, whether we want to admit this or not, that the market drives the church. Efficiency, effectiveness. Um, good is not good enough. And so I'm just thinking um, that that both it's in us, right, that that desire to be better. Um, you know, we didn't 
we didn't ask you to come speak because you were just average good guy, but you're one of the better thinkers out there. So how do we disconnect that, 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 that desire for better than from that sense of Tov? How are, how do we find ourselves satisfied in the good when no one celebrates the good, everyone celebrates the great? Well, Rick, I've always enjoyed being with you because of that kind of question. Um, I think that is um, that is one of the most important ideas that we have to subvert when we try to create a culture of goodness. Didn't you write a book? That, did you write uh, something about Christmas conspiracy or something like that? <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. This is a um, greatness conspiracy. You know, it, it undermines what we're doing. You know, I, I don't I don't get political very often. And this isn't political, but it is about a politician. Donald Trump's constant statement about greatness is a turnoff. And I think he's helping us. Is that I don't want to be like that. I want, I want, um, I like uh, Deborah Burks. I, I like her behind the platform. She says she seems to be very reasonable and generous and kind. I think I like that. We want role models like that. So I think uh, if, if a book is, I, I've heard of this book, Rick. I've never read it from good to great. I, I would like to reverse it and say we want to move from great to good. That's the challenge that many of us are facing right now in our churches. And I think that during this pandemic, with all this downtime, and I know for many pastors and leaders, this is actually a, co- a far more complex time than the regular church time. But I wonder if we can't use this time to renegotiate from greatness to goodness and start recalibrating how we're measuring uh, what we want to call successful in our churches. And I, and I am absolutely convinced. I, I looked at the passage today in Matthew chapter 20, is that Jesus says, you know, the rulers, uh, the first people of the ethnic groups of the world, the Gentiles, they love to pursue what is great. But not, he says, it's not supposed to be that way among you. Instead, you are to be marked by two words. He uses the word diakonos, servant, and doulos, slave. Those are your marks. And it is, it is the apostle's desire, or at least their mother's desire in Matthew 20, that one of them sit at the left and one of them sit at the right. And Jesus says, no, that's not the way it's going to work with us. We are going to be servants of one another. And through that kind of service, we will become more tov. So, you know, um, in your culture, uh, are you are you known for, uh, in the community around your church, as someone who serves the community? Or do you want the community to serve you? I have a pastor friend who went to a school board. This is a church that was just being planted that didn't have a place to meet. And they were starting to meet in the school. And they went to the school board. And the school board uh, superintendent said, uh, he murmured, um, what are they going to ask for now? And the church said this, how can we help this school district as the church in this community. And they said, we have never had a church do that. So by God's grace, here's, I believe this, that the spirit of God is at work in us and in our churches to promote Tove. We, uh, we have to be open to the spirit. We have to listen to the word of God. We have to be willing to be prompted by the Spirit to do those sorts of things that God is prompting us to do. 
You know, I've I've talked to pastors and leaders in churches all over the you know mostly United States, but in other places, and it is amazing to me the variety of things that churches do that promote goodness. I mean, some of them are serving the poor in their community. Some of them are providing food. Some of them, I, I know a church that that built their church as a gymnasium so that during the week it could be used by the local school children, by the local adults to play volleyball, basketball, whatever during the winter. It's long winters in Chicago. Um, and they, uh, so they, they bless their community that way. These are, these are the sorts of things I've been hearing for 20 years of churches who have turned toward the community rather than just toward themselves, that they are blessing their community. That's tov. That's benevolence. That's generosity for the sake of other people. And when people see that, it communicates the gospel to people. Yeah, that's great. Scott, uh, Scott, so, you know, just the um, kind of tension between uh, fruitfulness or greatness doing a good job and goodness um, how would you uh, kind of define uh, that in terms of how that compares or how that works in conjunction with one another? Because I know in this, we uh, talked about creation and God made, you know, the heavens and earth and it was good. So obviously he didn't do a sloppy job. So goodness is not, uh, doesn't mean mediocrity, but how would you just kind of uh, couch that and kind of place that in a culture that, you know, greatness is such a great value. Greatness seems to me to be measured in comparative ways. So I'm great if I'm better than other people. You know, there's nothing else for sports on TV, so we watched The Last Dance about Michael Jordan. And we, you know, we're Chicago people. We watched those years of those basketball teams, and uh, they wanted to be great. But to be great, you notice with Michael Jordan, he hated the Pistons, he hated the Lakers, he hated the Seattle Supersonic, whatever they are, the Portland. He hated these other teams. And he lived off a comparison. So greatness lives off a comparison. Tove lives off a design. So it doesn't have to be a better sermon than someone else's sermon. You start playing the game, who's got, who's got the biggest church, who's got the best sermons, who's got the best books, you're playing the wrong game. It is I think we ask the question, who is achieving the gifts that God created them to be, to do? You know, we have ornamental grasses in our backyard, and I can look out, they're just starting to grow. Uh, they never blossom rose, uh, rosebuds. So the, the grass is designed to grow tall and wispy and beautiful. Uh, a rose is going to produce a flower. And you're going to produce something, and your wife is going to produce something, and these leaders are going to produce that. And each person is called to the design that God has made for them. And tov for each of us is measured by our achieving what God has designed us to be, you know. I can't be a pastor, you know. I'm, I think I would have some fun sermons, but I think after a while, people would say, we got to find someone with more pastoral skills than that. Um, but I know some people who are pastors who would like to be professors, but they're, they haven't read enough. They, they want to spend all their time talking to people in their offices, and that's good, but a part of the intellectual education is is study. And so I have friends who are professors who are just amazing at it because they've devoted their whole life to it. I know pastors who've devoted their whole life to it. So each of us, Mark, um, the difference between great and good then is good is achieves the design. Tove achieves the design. Greatness measures itself over against somebody else. You know, I 
there are a lot of churches that aren't going to get much bigger than 100 people because they're in communities that aren't going to allow that. They can't measure themselves against these big churches. And um, churches that are mega churches shouldn't be bad-mouthing churches and communities. I have students who pastor small churches who are as gifted pastors as I've ever seen in my life. And nobody knows anything about them except their church. And their church adores them. That's Tove. Tove is living up to the design that God has for you. Scott, last question, then we'll go to round two. But one of the thoughts that I have as you as you were speaking is just the sense that um, what role does having so so much so many men in primary roles of leadership, knowing that, um, and this isn't a blanket statement, but but there is that sense of competition that seems to be a little stronger in men and that need to, to succeed, to achieve, to, to compete. Um, do you, do you think there's anything there that, that we, we don't have enough, uh, female voices and leaders at that level to cultivate Tove? Are you asking me to get you in trouble? Because you know, I, think you <laughs> I just know got myself I, in trouble. Yes, so I, you know, I do. I do. I mean, I'm not into uh, gender binaries like this. That men are like this, and women are like this. Uh, there's a spectrum of human characteristics that yeah. um, that see. I, I would say this: church pastors have that ambition. Uh, let's say they have personalities that strive for opportunities where their ambition can be exploited and where it can be most successful. So it, it's to me, it's almost like a personality type that gets into a church because the personality type needs that kind of position that gives them that kind of glory, power, et cetera, et cetera, and ambition and competition. Um, but I can say this, that um, as someone who grew up in the 1950s and 60s and 70s in a, in a household where my father was a coach, where sports were important, and I basically grew up in a locker room, competition was really uh, a part of my life. And I like competition, and I think I recognize competition in other people. I've never seen competitors any more fierce than Michael Jordan and Tiger Woods. Um, Diana Taurasi is pretty good on the, in that. I think she plays out in your area. Um, but I, I think that ambition and competition in churches has to be checked. And if it's more characteristic of the males who achieve levels of leadership in churches, then all the more we can just say that those are the people that need to check that desire to compete and compare themselves with one another. And that means, that's why I said earlier, we need to surround ourselves with people who are marked by Tove. And people who are marked by Tove don't measure success by comparing themselves to one another. They measure themselves by whether they've achieved what God has called them to do, and they're satisfied with doing that. So um, I do think that there's, I, I've been around too many times that we, uh, who's got the best church? Um, that is really a, a silly question. You know, the best church in the United States, which I don't think exists, but let's just say you've got it, doesn't do anybody one bit of good in Northern Italy. So the best church in Northern Italy is the church that, that you've got, you know? So I, I think we need to, we need to eschew and block and exercise the demons of ambition and competition of the way we measure things in churches. And I, I, I recalibrating it according to Tove. In other words, it's, it's wonderful that the book of Acts can tell us the number of people who came to Christ. 
And listen, there's not a little bit of fun in the gospel writers when they say that they fed 5,000 people. I mean, that's pretty cool. So there's a little bit of that, but it is the magnificence of the work of God through Jesus that is being glorified there, not measuring ourselves over against some other church community. Well, thank you. I'm sure I got myself in trouble, but I appreciate your... And yes, we do need more women in church leadership. All right. Thanks so much for listening to part one of Restoring a Goodness Culture with Scott McKnight. Special thanks to Pastor Mark Strong from Life Change Church and Pastor Rick McKinley of Imago Day Community for leading us in the Q&A session. We know it left you hanging, but don't worry. Part two of Scott's talk is available right now on the Together PDX podcast.